to On the Wet Coast, a podcast about sexuality and ethical non-monogamy of every variety. We talk polyamory and swinging, monogamous and open relationships, from dirty, dirty sex to heartbreak. We share our personal experiences and philosophy, observations and theories, what works for us, and where we fucked it right up. Join us on the Wet Coast. The you live in has been pervaded with sex negativity. Everyone is pushed to repress and feel shame about their sexuality or lifestyle. One of the important acts of rebellion a person could do is to step out of the shadows and tell their story out loud. There are risks involved in telling your story. More than just the frowning disapproval of judgy relatives at holiday dinners, living an openly atypical life leads to risks to employment, housing, medical care, and child custody. This is why it's doubly important for those who can live out loud to do so, since their open existence is a powerful fuck you to the status quo. Our guest today has been openly flipping off the establishment for more than 25 years since beginning the magazine Pucker Up shortly after finishing college. She continues to do so as she works on a memoir, telling her story from childhood through to her relationship with her father as he battled AIDS in the early years of the epidemic. We are super excited to be welcoming to our podcast today, Tristan Terramino. Hey! Welcome, Tristan. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me. So good to have you. Tristan Terramino is an award-winning author, sex educator, speaker, and media maker. She is editor of 25 anthologies and the author of eight books on sex and relationships, including Opening Up, A Guide to Creating and Sustaining Open Relationships. She is founder of The Open List, a list of professionals, therapists, social workers, psychiatrists, psychologists, consultants, relationship and life coaches, doctors, lawyers, etc., who are experienced and knowledgeable about alternative sexuality and lifestyles, including open relationships, polyamory, and non-monogamy. She is the host of the long-running podcast, Sex Out Loud. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) That sounded like a lot. Who's that girl? (laughs) Jesus. That's you, Tristan. Okay, okay. So you started uh, writing and, and producing content, like, not that long after getting out of college. How did you get inspired to do that? Yeah, well, I was actually supposed to go to law school. Um, <laughs> and that was, I'm a planner, if you know me at all. I'm really organized. I've got a timeline. I've got a calendar. I've got a spreadsheet. I, I was convinced I was going to law school. And um, I, I was in the top 10% of my class at Wesleyan. I had stellar recommendations, um, but I had average LSAT scores. And in the spring of my senior year of college, I was rejected from every single one of the schools I applied to, except I was waitlisted at one. So I went to see my advisor because you can do an undergraduate thesis. And I had done mine on butch femme lesbian identities and representation. And so it, she was like one of the only out dyke professors at the time, Claire Potter. Hi, Claire. I love you. I'm still <laughs> in touch. Um, so I went to her and I was like sobbing and just freaking out. And she said to me, very matter of factly, Tristan, I don't think that you want to go to law school and I don't think you want to be a lawyer. I think you want to write about sex. I think you're really good at it. And you know, that sort of hit me like a ton of bricks because to me, I did love writing about sex and it was a passion of mine. And I certainly got to do that in my thesis. But in 1993, that wasn't a job. Yeah. 
it just wasn't a job. And so it wasn't a job and it wasn't in the plan. No, and it wasn't in the plan. So um, I got in off the wait list to one school, to the one school, and um, she told me to defer for a year and sort of see what happens. And so I moved to New York City and I started writing and sending my stuff out to, well, think about it. Like there weren't that many. <laughs> there were some places, but they were all yeah. like these sort of alternative magazines like Bad Attitude and Venus and Furs and Blue Blood, most of them based in San Francisco. Um, so there were these really indie magazines that were publishing sex stuff. And I started sending my stuff out. Um, I famously sent a piece to Honor Backs, which they rejected. And, uh, you know, five years later, I became editor of Honor Backs. So that's like <laughs> a funny story that um, <laughs> the publisher liked to tell. Oops. Um so, yeah, so I started writing about sex and I, I and I and I sort of would do open mics and go to writers conferences and try to connect with other people who had sexual material in their writing. And erotica as a genre was kind of just starting to bloom. There were like a few anthologies. There wasn't even really a section at the bookstore. Right. But there were a few anthologies. And I was like, OK, so I'm going to submit to these anthologies and sort of see where it goes. And and that was also at the time of, you know, riot girls and zine culture for mm -hmm. children out there who don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the 90s were all about making your own zines. And for the most part, zines were these homemade magazines where you would draw, you would do art, you would write poetry, you would write diatribes, you would write fiction, whatever. And then you would uh, go late at night uh, to Kinko's and photocopy it yeah. and then like give it out to all your friends and like bring it to like spoken word events. So that was my first intention. Like I'll just do this, you know, DIY um, thing. And then I decided I wanted something more than just my writing. I wanted other people's writing. I wanted photography, which is going to look like shit when you photocopy it. So my first issue turned out to be 64 pages and actually printed by a printer. <laughs> wow. And I used the credit card they gave me in college for, you know, they give you free credit cards. Um, I had no, you know, I, I didn't know what I was doing. I, I knew nothing, but I just did it anyway. Nice. I remember in the early 90s, those those erotica anthologies and, you know, reprinting of Victorian uh, erotica and such. And, and the entire erotica section was generally one shelf. Yeah. in the books bookstore like just both you know up, uh, up high or down low <laughs> i guess <laughs> and i i was looking at the list sort of on your on your website and i was like oh yeah i had that one and i had that one i definitely had the best lesbian erotica um and i remember going into the bookstores and you had to physically pick those up and carry them to the to the checkout because we're of a pretty similar age and uh yeah that was definitely as I was like such a shy, repressed little thing that that was like a big deal for me. <laughs> no, that was brave. I mean, that's, that. that actually was really brave. I mean, you know, Amazon came along in the late 90s. And before that, if you wanted a book like you had to you had to take it to the counter like condoms and birth control. And <laughs> it, you know, it prevented some people from buying buying books they wanted. Yeah. Well, even even hanging around that that shelf in the bookstore. Was yeah. Little, browsing. And yeah. Stuff. Browsing. It's like, <laughs> oh, what's, what's this? I'm, you know, very casually just, you know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's awesome. And I, I mean, it's, it's so 
often hear people's stories today that are people, you know, 10, often sometimes 20 years younger than us who are, you know, new in high school, they were doing all this stuff. And, and I just, I had no idea. And so it's so impressive to me that you, at a similar time frame, like knew what you were doing and, and just had this, this focus and, and ability to, to step forward with it when I had no clue what was going on with me at that age. Well, it's funny. And I also, you know, I decided early on to use my given name um, right. when certainly probably half or more of my peers in that world were using pseudonyms for good reason. Um, they had day jobs. They actually wrote other things under their their given name. Um, and so it was, you know, it was a decision that once you make it, you sort of can't go back on it. And it meant everyone I went to high school with is going to be able to look me up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they have, they have. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a, it's a commitment level going with, with your, with your birth name. And so. I mean, it's also, you know, a privilege. I mean, at that point I'm like a well-educated white girl who is appears middle-class, but you know, is not, has no money whatsoever and is living in Williamsburg literally 15 years before it's cool, um, <laughs> where no one will come visit me. But, um, <laughs> so there's, there's a level of privilege and I, you know, I've always said like those who, you said this in the opening, those who can live out lives really, um, should consider doing so to help other people who can't. Right. I mean, yeah. I, I'm out about everything in my life. Everything you read about me on the Internet is true. Um, <laughs> <laughs> everything. Um, and I just feel like it paves the way for people to not feel alone and to feel like, oh, my God, there are other people like like me out there. And maybe it also paves the way for people to come out about, you know, their own stuff at some point when they're ready. Mm hmm. So your bibliography and your filmography is full of a lot of butt stuff. <laughs> right? How, so it was, was that was that always an interest or did you oh see it God. as a niche when you were sort of early? Right, right, right. <laughs> this is funny. This is a right good story. Yeah, this is a good story. Um, so when I did the Best Lesbian Erotica series, for, I, I sort of got my foot in the door with Cleus Press, this independent queer feminist press. And they sent out a letter in the mail, people, uh, a letter that said, hey, we want to start a new series of sex books. We want them to be single subject, not general. And so we are soliciting proposals. And so if you could write about just one topic in sexuality, what would it be? You know, send us a proposal. So I wrote the proposal for the ultimate guide to anal sex for women. And I'll remember when they called me, um, they were a little taken aback. <laughs> like they were like, um, oh, right. Uh, we don't know if this is the one we should start with. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because even though they're like indie and cool and whatever, they, they also have to get into bookstores. They have to get into Barnes and Noble. They have to get into Borders. And um, so they're like, this is fascinating and, and it excites us very much. But we don't know that this should be the first in the series. Um, I, I wrote the book and I proposed writing the book because it was a book I wanted to have on my bookshelf. Um, I felt like I loved anal sex from the first time I had it, which I know is not 
a typical experience, but I had a super positive experience and to build on. And I felt like I can't be the only person. The only information I could find out about anal sex was written by men, often for men who had sex with men. So Jack Morin had already written the great tome, uh, Anal Pleasure and Health. And when I dug around for other kinds of information, I'm mostly finding it at like gay men's health crisis, around AIDS organizing. Really, no, no woman was writing about anal sex. So I was like, I, I, this is a book I want on my shelf and I'll just fucking do it myself. <laughs> um, and so The Ultimate Guide to Anal Sex was born. Um, it actually became, the series was taken from that name. So I created The Ultimate Guide. That was my thing I came up with. It literally, the series continues to this day. Like four days ago, I just finished The Ultimate Guide to Seduction and Foreplay. Nice. by uh, Dr. Jess O'Reilly and Marla Renee Stewart. And so to see these ultimate guides, there's been so many since my book. It's just, it feels really gratifying that they had this vision so early on. This is 1997. They had, you know, so early on to do these books and they have, they have persisted and lasted and people love them. People love them. And, and it's the, I mean, the ultimate guide is a very, you know, uh, catchy preamble and the ultimate guide to anal sex for women is, um, is so ubiquitous in, especially the homes of queer women. It's, it's on almost every bookshelf. Yeah. It's, it's on ours. <laughs> <laughs> well, and what's funny is that you say like, there's a lot of butt stuff. Um, because you think maybe writing a book on anal sex, the ultimate guide, no less, would um would sort of satiate something um but in <laughs> fact you know i've written two books on anal sex because i also wrote the anal sex position guide i've written wrote two editions so the ultimate guide to anal sex for women is now in its second edition and it has 150 pages extra from when i first wrote it because i learned a lot um in 10 years and yeah. i've done how many videos have i done in anal sex one two Three, four, five, six. I think six videos devoted exclusively to anal sex. Obviously, there are anal sex in in more of my videos. But um, yeah, it's like people always ask me, hey, you know, do you want to teach anal 101? Are you like really freaking bored of that? And I'm like, actually, I'm not. (laughs) You know, there's there's there are people out there who are just discovering this kind of pleasure, who are just starting to think about maybe doing something. And I mean, the moment I get tired of talking about anal sex or teaching about anal sex, the moment I stop doing it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that, that I'm curious about is, um, you know, we, we sort of talked about your, uh, you coming right out of college and, you know, starting publishing. Um, how did your family receive it? Was it a, a sex positive home? And how did they feel about that? You know, your new adventure? So I grew up in a really regular place. <laughs> um, I grew up in a nearly all white, nearly all Christian and Catholic suburb of New York City um, that was primarily upper middle class, although I wasn't. I was raised by a single mom. I went to public school. I got zero sex education. And my mom is from a long line of like of wasps. Um, and so... <laughs> She had this particular way. Her her education method was this. She had books, explicit books about sexuality on the bookshelf. She had had a huge bookshelf, a huge collection of books. Um, 
And when those books went missing for any length of time, she didn't say anything. <laughs> okay. And so, and I love reading and I'm precocious and I'm, you know, so I, so the first book I ever read was The Joy of Sex, which was, you know, a huge million dollar, you know, million copies sold bestseller in the 70s. And I got my hands on The Joy of Sex and I was like, wow, first of all, there's a lot of information in here. Second of all, these drawings are very realistic. Um, <laughs> you know, they show penetration. They show genitals. These are not line drawings, people. This is like, to me, it's also the time, the first time I saw explicit images. I would consider it the first time I saw porn. You know, probably Alex Comfort is like, there's no porn in my book, but it's explicit images where you can see penetration and genitals of people having sex. So it's also my first porn. And so I just started reading these books and um, and and she would say nothing. But other than that, I never she never had a talk with me like no one. Yeah, it was it was a very, very typical story. One thing she did do at 16 was she uh, brought me to get on birth control. Right. But it was more like I made an appointment with the pediatrician. We're going. We got there and she was like, we'd like to go on birth control. So it wasn't really like a discussion and she didn't ask me like, are you having sex or are you not having sex? I wasn't yet having sex. Um, so it, it just sort of happened. It was like a very matter of fact thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I remember like sneaking people's parents copies of the joy of sex was definitely a big part of our teenage or like young teen and teenage years and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and I, I remember you telling the story of, uh, you know, your your mom never having a talk about sex with you because you're reading, you know, uh, historical fiction that was just full of sex and she just assumed that you were getting the idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. More waspy I mean, upbringing. Yeah. I, I just totally identify with that. It's just so <laughs> it's so bizarre. But really, when you think about it, um, our parents had no knowledge or skills. I mean, they were raised with no yeah. sex education, and so they were doing the best they can. And even parents of a brand new generation who are younger than I am, you know, people come to me all the time and say, hey, I want to be a sex positive parent. But then when I say, what kind of sex education did you have? These are people in their 30s, maybe 40. They're like none. So, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's like it's a really vicious cycle that as adults, we have to actually like intervene and say, I'm going to educate myself. And I'm also going to take the leap to say whether this makes me uncomfortable or not. I need to talk to my kids about it. And it needs well, to be an ongoing conversation. And even those of us who did get really fairly good sex education, there still was not a lot of, about pleasure. It was really just sort of, you know, the the um, the health mechanics of it and, um, you know, and, and really nothing about, you know, about uh, queer sex and, and queer relationships. I mean, I I don't know how long it will be before we have what I would call consent driven, pleasure based sex ed you know and inclusive sex ed inclusive, yeah um I, you know that's the goal that would be my goal if i was writing policy and we are so far away from that we've made steps in some cities and some states they're now talking about queer people lgbtqia in some very progressive places they're having conversation with kids about porn 
But I would say for the most part, we have such a long way to go in terms of what schools are teaching kids. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah for sure. So you were uh, like chided from an early age for being blunt, brash, aggressive, confident, etc. How did you resist caving into the demands to be more ladylike? Oh, my God. This is a really funny story. <clears throat> <laughs> well, so I was very bossy as a child. And um, I can't believe it. I know you can't believe it. So it's, you know, this is, again, a thing where you sometimes you come out the way you come out, right? Your, your kid just pops out and already has some personality traits. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been going through what I call my archive. I've been going through boxes, and boxes and boxes of letters, report cards, artwork, uh, mixtapes, all this stuff as I'm writing my memoir. And it's been fascinating to kind of look back on what teachers said about me when I was very young and stuff like that. And so one thing that struck me was that in first grade, I used to make up plays and cast them. And at recess, I would direct them, essentially. I would, I would make people play these parts and tell them what to do. And um, my first grade teacher, Mrs. Treshell, shout out, I don't know if she's still alive, um, wrote on my report card that I was, you know, conscientious and a good student and also a leader among my peers. And in 1978, for a woman to write about a girl, she's a leader, is pretty fantastic. You have it's to pretty, admit, it's pretty remarkable. that's like really, really forward thinking. And, you know, language matters and I love words. And um, and then later in life, uh, I think my freshman year of high school, I got picked to go to this leadership conference. And it was a week long and it was from all over New York State. And so people told me at various points in my life, you can be a leader. You are a leader, which I think, you know, imprints on you. Right. Yeah. It's, it's it's possible. So it's like the combination of someone making space for it to be possible. And then me having this sort of naturally bossy personality um, just kind of came together. But. What the funny story I wanted to tell you is um, I was talking to someone whose podcast like I'm going to be on later and she is a sort of spiritual person finding your path kind of and she does these soul contracts uh, based on numerology. So she was like, tell me your given name and I'm going to do this soul contract for you. And so what she said about me and my soul contract is that I had a tremendous amount of masculine energy. So I told my boyfriend, Eli, this after I got off the phone with her, I was like, you know, she did my chart or my contract or whatever and said I had all this masculine energy. And he was like, well, that's what she calls it. Right. Like, in other words, what she's seeing or picking up on or whatever her process is. Right. Is that I'm assertive. I'm ambitious. I'm loud. I'm um, really decisive. I'm a leader. And she's saying that's masculine energy. Right. So we're still caught in these gender binaries instead of saying instead of saying like you have these qualities, which I do. She's assigning this gendered word to it. Yeah. And really, no, no gender has uh, has ownership over any of those qualities or any others. Exactly. Exactly. But it's fascinating that we're like still kind of stuck in. So, So I always find that when people psychics and all these different people sort of read me in whatever way they read me, they always get it right. But 
we have such limited language that yes. I'm constantly being told that I have a lot of masculinity in my chart. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I'm just bossy. You, I'm a bossy femme. You don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of your femme identity, um, how has that affected your life and your queer identity? Yeah, so I saw you sneakily join my Patreon recently. <laughs> what? I was like, oh, they're going to like dive deep, uh, which, which I would say as a general rule, I don't know anyone who's interviewed me who has read all that stuff. So you guys are the first, <laughs> um, which and I just really appreciate it. I was like, oh, God. But now I'm like, oh, God, they know all my secrets. Um so, you know, when I came out in 1991, when I was a sophomore in college, um, Butch Femme was still very much the iconography of a lot of different kinds of lesbians. And I really related to, to Femme, both because I partnered mostly with masculine of center people, most of whom identified as Butch, and because I felt suddenly like, oh, I've never felt good at quote unquote femininity. And now that that ties into what I just said, right? I'm not quiet. I'm not gentle. I'm not nurturing. I don't take up little space, you know, things that girls are taught, right? I'm not good at any of those. And, and in general, you know, I, I just wasn't, I didn't feel like a regular girl and I didn't feel like I was doing girl or feminine right um, and certainly looking around at my peers, I was like, oh, yeah, no, like the, you've got this sort of presentation and expression that I see in like Seventeen magazine and it's particular kind of white femininity. And I can't achieve that. I'm not good at that. That's not my jam. So once I came out and I found other femmes and I read all about Butch Femme, I was like, oh, this is my identity. It's like a critique of feminine gender and it's it's a gender that's been queered um it just felt so much more like this is home this makes so much more sense for me mm -hmm. so you're not just sort of like caving to the expectation you're you're taking that expectation and and twisting it absolutely absolutely and also you know announcing myself as much as i can as queer right, I think is really important to me because femmes and femme presenting people do get misread as straight. Maybe yeah. that's changed. I, it's not 1991. It's 2020. And I think people have finally discovered that even straight people have nuanced genders. What? <laughs> I mean, like we're starting to go there. We're starting to figure out that gender is complicated and it's not always wrapped up in sexual orientation, right? That there is a thing as a butch straight woman, right? Have you been yeah. to Montana? They're there. Yeah. Um, that's a stereotype. But I feel like, you know, we're beginning to now kind of break this stuff down and give people more options. But certainly when I came out in the 90s, um, there still was we were pretty tied to the binary. No, it's it's becoming much more a la carte. A la carte, I like that so much. <laughs> At first, an open marriage seems like the greatest thing in the world to Natalie and Sean. Adding a bunch of new, hot people to their already excellent sex life? What could be better? Then they meet Beth, a queer single mom with a lesbian partner, and things become complicated. 
After some fun dating as a threesome, Beth and Sean fall in love, and Natalie feels pushed to the side by both her former lover and her husband. As Sean and Beth begin celebrating new milestones and plan their first trip together as a couple, Natalie is thrown for a loop and longs for a time that being open felt sexy and fun. Natalie starts seeking that fun for herself and, after many naughty adventures and a few false starts, finds her own unexpected love. Join Natalie, Sean, and Beth in a funny, sexy, surprising story as they navigate the challenges of deciding that when it comes to the amount of love in their lives, they choose more. Get Cat Stark's new novel, Waking Up Polyamorous, in ebook or paperback at your favorite online retailer. And I cannot tell you how many psychic people have said that to me. It's like almost embarrassing now. They all see it. They all that's that's how they read me. And I'm like, you it's not that. It's not <laughs> it, that. it is that, but it's not that. But you're right. It's like that's that's just the only language that some they have. have. Yeah. Right, right, right. But it's interesting because the 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 that idea of the of the like fierce bossy young woman as like a feminine archetype is is a thing that's very strong in my mind so the the idea mm. of, of you know leadership being uh you know a masculine quality you know a, a, a singularly masculine quality is just very alien to me yeah but it's just ba- it, it's just still just rooted in the, in the binary um i think we're finally letting up on the binary a little bit you know and this next generation behind us is doing great stuff but it's been a long time coming Oh yeah, they're 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 really coloring outside the lines for sure. Yeah, yeah. And so now there's role models, very public role models for people to see uh, all kinds of different genders, and that those genders are not all attached to queer people, right? Yeah. Which I think is really really important because yeah, because you know I feel like forever I've known straight people who have not traditional genders. And who have felt like, I don't, I don't understand myself. Like, what, what am I? And why can't, why is there no one else like me? Yeah. So, yeah, it's been a really interesting thing to me, um, sort of as a a person in my 40s and not really having any epiphanies about my gender until my 40s, perhaps because there just wasn't the language for it before then. And I had always been, you know, really quite femme and sort of considered myself like high femme until about two years ago, almost. And I would still sometimes, you know, like wear suits and, and bounce around with that. But I sort of started describing myself as as genderqueer over the last couple of years and, and going to they, them pronouns. And I find often I want to be like both of the things at the same time. So I, I dressed up like a fairy the other night um, for a, a reading with my musical theater group. Um, Cause we're like, yeah, let's wear costumes. Um, and, you know, just like this long wig and this fancy dress and the wings. And I put on all this makeup and a crown and I, and I just, I felt so me in that, but I also wanted to be dressed as the prince at the same time. And yeah, it's a, it's a confusing place to be in my brain. <laughs> No, but I think it also makes perfect sense because I think this is why language and community and people being out matters is that the word genderqueer didn't exist when we were in our 20s. Yeah, no. There were no like genderqueer icons <laughs> in our 20s, right? There there weren't books with the word genderqueer on them, on the covers, in them. 
so this is why I think it's important to name things. And this is why I do, you know, like I will never let go of identity politics. Um, you know, people complain about identity politics. They can be problematic, but it's also language matters. And language I feel matters. like a lot of people are figuring out, oh, wait, there's a thing called non-binary. Well, that that makes more sense than what I've been doing. OK, now that now that I know that that's an option. Yeah, that fits that fit that that's the best fit for me. So I think it makes perfect sense that it's in your 40s um, because we the options have expanded, quite frankly. And now people are finding things that make more sense to them. Yeah. And, and there's there's uh, mainstream artists who, uh, you know, who are uh, presenting different gender expression that we didn't even have words for 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and uh, so it's it's not just. It's not just queer culture that's experiencing this, but it's it's mainstream uh, culture is is queering and expanding. Yeah. I mean, like men everywhere are wearing a little bit of makeup and some nail polish. Right. It it seems like no big deal. It's actually a huge fucking deal. Yeah. <laughs> because 20 years ago, people would have been like that person's gay or maybe that person's trans. Or 40 but, years ago, you might get arrested. Oh, yeah. and 40 years ago, certainly you would get arrested. Right. Yeah. And now it's sort of like. Cover girl has people of genders beyond woman who are like cover girls. I'm going to put that in quotes, but you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Spokespeople like models. Um, and so, yeah, we've we've come a long way in that sense. And I think it will be amazing to sort of see how how that affects then the next generation coming after this one. Yeah, I am. I am pretty excited to see where it goes from here. And uh, yeah, I sort of laughed again as I was reading back in in your posts about uh, sort of your university days and and like Doc Martens with everything. And (laughs) that was absolutely with the with the flowy flower dresses, with the fishnets and the cutoff shorts, with my ballet tights and and a plaid flannel as I dashed between classes. (laughs) Like it's just totally. That yeah. was that was the look. That was that was a particular look. Um, but I still have Doc Martens to this day because let's also face it, they're fucking comfortable. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they're pretty amazing. They're really comfortable. So and last long. So, so what inspired you to write the memoir now? Right. So, I thought maybe someone would ask me this, like, um, how long did it take you to write this book? And I would say. 25 years (laughs) because I wanted to write this book, uh, you know, since my father died and I actively avoided it and resisted it. I I mean, I could think of anything else to do, but that I kept myself quite busy. Actually, we (laughs) could say that my entire career has been avoiding this book. If we wanted to, that could be one analysis. Um, So, Yeah. So I felt like I just, I wasn't ready. I was, I was scared. It was out of my comfort zone. I didn't feel competent. You know, I, I have written first person pieces, but you know, for the village voice, I wrote first person stuff for 10 years, but it was all pretty light and low key and uh, about sex and kind of adventures. And it didn't like dig into my psyche in deep ways or my upbringing or my family or my mental health. Um, I haven't really written about any of that. And so I was terrified. And uh, what most people don't know is that I created my Patreon to get me to write the fucking book. 
clever. Okay, so here's this. This is fascinating, right? But I was like, if I ha- if I make a Patreon and I tell people I'm going to give them a draft once a week, then I have these people and and they paid two dollars or five dollars or maybe fifty dollars, and they and I said I would do it, so I have to do it. So the Patreon was as much about support for me as it was about accountability. I'm mm-hmm. going to create this group of people who are expecting that I'm going to write this book. <laughs> it's a little trick like I set up for myself, right? It's a little it's a little mental trick. Um and it worked. I'll just tell you that it fucking worked. <laughs> because you know, um the first draft of my of my memoir is in the hands of my agent right now and I finished it. Um Hooray. So I would say in the last year is when I've done the most work. There have been starts and stops. There have been sections. There have been, you know, ideas. There have, there have been some, some moments where I've written about my dad or I've written an essay or a piece. But for this year, this solid year, I've been working on it um, as a big part of what I've been doing. Well, congratulations. I, thanks. For, uh, for finishing. And I just want to, um, you know, I want to tell my story. I think stories are important. I think um, I have this unique perspective as a second generation queer person who lived a very different life than my dad, who was faced with extreme and explicit homophobia and violence growing up. Um, whereas I, you know, was on a college campus with GLBT groups and queer role models. And I mean, it wasn't like Will and Grace weren't, wasn't on the scene at that point, but still there was enough. And so it's interesting to see the different ways in which we lived our lives based on when we came out. Yeah. I still don't have a title. So for any of you who've read any of my book and want to um, suggest a title, please do. Cause I, I, I can't, I, I've, I've like brainstormed like a hundred and I've only like one of them maybe. And it's really funny because my friend L Chase, we've been Marco Poloing during the um, stay at home thing. So we're doing a lot of Marco Polos. And one day I was like, oh, in the middle of the night, I had this thing and I wrote, I wrote it down. What, what do you think of this title? And L Chase, who is such a good friend and is so honest and is so sweet. Um, Marco pulled me back and said, I would not be mad. That's better than the ones you've suggested before. But I think you can do even better. <laughs> <laughs> You well, know, I think what is, I'm going to do is I'm going to I'm going to start a Patreon where I come up with a title for your book every week. And... <laughs> oh, that's a good idea. So, you know, so I don't know. I don't know what it's going to be called yet. That's the really funny thing. And I'm really good with titles. Um, You don't know this, but like I've titled other people's book. There is a very famous online summit, which I named. Um, I'm really good with titles, but because it's about me, like I've lost, I just can't, I it's I can't do it. Yeah. Titling my two books was probably the hardest part of either project uh, somehow. <laughs> um, and yelling in pasties ended up coming from like just sort of an offhand comment that was made. And so, yeah, it was that's a challenge. So, uh, yeah. See, that's a great title. Um, it it's intriguing. It invites me in. Um, it's sort of there's a paradox there, which is that people in pasties are usually not yelling. Um, <laughs> so to me, that accomplishes what a title should. It, it, it's it's quite intriguing and you want to know more. 
Yeah, although it did confuse a lot of Australians and British people because they read pasties as pasties, which are like a meat pie kind of thing. Oh, the meat pie. You're totally right. <laughs> so so then I start picturing wearing one of those on each boob. Yelling, then... Or just yelling from within a meat pie. Yeah. Yelling, or yelling into meat pie. Yelling into a meat pie. You know, that is that is somebody's kink. Like, <laughs> Someone is listening to this and has, has something twing, you know, just just zinged inside them, and that's now they're. I mean, I don't know. Yelling into meat pies. I might pick that book up. It does sound like very strange. It sounds very strange. But it's like, what is that about? I, I need to I need to know what that's about. Uh, yelling into meat pies by Tristan Terman. <laughs> Just as a complete non sequitur title. I, I mean, I'm a, I, I don't eat meat. I only eat fish. I'm a pescatarian. So that's not going to fly at all <laughs> for me. <laughs> all right. Um, now that we've kind of lost the plot a little bit. Um, and sort of like, what has it been like to be open up with the vulnerability of telling your own story? Oh, it's just the most terrifying, horrifying thing. I mean, in so many ways, like, one, first of all, reliving some of these moments of my life, I I have the ability to go back there and and touch into the feelings. So like writing these chapters where my dad got sick and where he was diagnosed, like I was like crying, 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 crying. Eli would come in the room and be like, are you OK? And I'm like, I'm just crying and writing, crying, and writing, crying, writing. Um, so the process was at times really, really painful. And then, of course, like you, you judge yourself, right? You judge yourself because I want to be honest with people. And um, I've, I've fucked up. I've like hurt people that I love. I have made decisions that I wouldn't make today. Um, I have been confused. I've been naive. I, I think one of the things that's so fascinating to me about my own book is just how naive I was. Because I was so book smart, you know, and like I was really naive when it came to this stuff, um, both sex and and my father's identity. So um, that is kind of shocking to me. I wouldn't have I wouldn't have put naive on a list of you know qualities of mine. But there was a time and I was also slutty. And um, what's really funny, there's this weird push pull for me about the sluttiness. So first of all, I feel like when people say Tristan Terramino is writing a memoir they are thinking, oh, my God, here comes 24-7 dom sub, dungeons, uh -huh. orgies, play parties, wild, wild, wild sexual adventures. Yeah. And the truth is that's the next memoir. <laughs> <laughs> because this memoir only goes up until um, I'm 25. I essentially experienced my life as before my father died and after my father died. So this so this memoir ends shortly after my father's died and I'm only 25. And so by then I've had some good sexual adventures, but nothing like, you know, once I hit, I don't know, 27, it, I mean, it was like gangbusters. So first I fear that people are going to be like, wah, wah, this isn't even exciting. Like this isn't enough sex for me. And then I fear on the other hand, people are going to be like, this is way too sexy and publishers are going to be like, we do not want to touch this. Um, there's too much sex in it. We find all of it charming if she took out the sex. Like, so I have all these like internal voices inside me being like, this isn't right um, on either side. 
There's yeah. too much sex and there's not enough and, sex. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I, yeah. Does that even make sense? It doesn't. It does. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're you know, you, you, you're, you're somehow just disappointing uh, both sets of people at the same time. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. You know, I disappoint anyone. But it is what it is. You sort of just have to tell the story. Yeah. Well, I and I think because so many memoirs either are the wild, sexy stuff or just very straight laced kind of like, I don't know, they they take all of the sexuality out of. of yeah, it's, a it's, story. A, it's sanitized in that. Yeah. Way. yeah. Um, and and we do need a lot more of the, you know, like people are actually human and sexual beings. Um, and that is part of, you know, life and not just quote unquote sexy life. Yeah, you know, there's a memoir uh, with sex in the title, which has very little sex in it. I just found that disappointing. <laughs> I really was curious about this person who is a public figure and a, and a really great thinker on sexuality and gender. And then I was like, wait, where's the sex? It wasn't here. Yeah. But I think that's also about publishing, mainstream, getting on the New York Times bestseller list. I mean, there's all these factors that go into why the sex may end up cut from the story. Yeah. Still, it's 2020. It's fucking unbelievable, but it's true. It's it, it's unbelievable. You know, and and I think a lot of people are still just uncomfortable with being open about that aspect of their life. Like a, a lot of people do not talk about their sex lives with their friends, um, let alone, you know, talk about it on the, the Internet and publish books about it and, you know, and have videos where people can see their buttholes. You know, I mean, like mm -hmm. most, most people, ha most people just are not open about their sex lives with anybody. I mean, I think for me, certainly the memoir post 25, you know, the next memoir I'm going to write, sex is my career and it's my yeah. life. Yeah. And it's my community. Right. So it's like it can't not be sex. But for the first part of my life, it was a big part of me, like coming of age, figuring out my body, figuring out desire, then figuring out I was queer. It shaped me in the same ways that my parents shaped me, that my education shaped me, that where I grew up shaped me. I can't separate that out. No, it's 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 part of your story. And, you know, and and it wouldn't make it wouldn't make sense with how to what degree it's informed who you are for it to right. not be part of your story. Right. And sex is full of, you know, drama and conflict and learning and growing and disappointment and love and hate. And uh, so it's like also a great uh, plot device. <laughs> <laughs> because so much shit goes down during sex that, you know, it can be a microcosm of life. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Like, suddenly I'm starting to think here. It's like, whoa, don't go down that don't, rabbit hole. Yeah. <laughs> don't think. That doesn't make for a good podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, that, I think I'm going to be pondering that for, for quite a while. The whole vulnerability thing is we often, we fear that as being a thing that makes us weak, but it's actually like one of the most badass things that we can do is to, is to show that piece of ourselves and like let down sort of the shields that, that we often exist behind. And especially sort of as a, as a public figure and stuff, like people see you as this, as this tough, 
you know, um, assertive woman. And so to like, let that vulnerability and let that, that shield slip a bit to see into your deeper experience and, and, you know, your loss and, and that, you know, and where you have made mistakes and where you've, you know, experienced this pain, it's like, it's, it's a really badass thing to be doing. Oh, thank you. That is so sweet. It's, it's hard. Um, yes. And I have cultivated a public persona, which is not that much unlike, you know, Tristan Taramino is not that much unlike Tristan, but there are differences. And there, mm. this, there's some stuff here. Like my agent, when he read some, some of it, he emailed me and I remember thinking, he said, I feel like there are times when you really take me into your inner, inner world. Like you're telling me the feelings that are like in, in you and the thoughts that are going through your head and I'm there with you. And, and that, you know, and I, that's great uh, for me. I love that when I read that in memoirs. Right. And I feel like also it's just, I've read memoirs where I feel like people have their guard up. Yes. And they're not satisfying as a reader. They just aren't. They're not satisfying when everything's neat and it, you know, makes perfect sense. I mean, there's things in my life that don't make sense. And I don't know why I did them. (laughs) And I'm not attempting to resolve why I did them. Um, I'm but I'm just telling you the story of, of what happened. Um. So, so it's also kind of a little bit messy, but I'm hoping that people don't want it to be this sort of neatly packaged Tristan, because Tristan is not neat. I am very neat at home, just so you know, I'm very organized. <laughs> I'm fucking crazy about the neatness, but uh, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah I get it. And, you know, and, and uh, I, I totally relate to what, what you're talking about. If, if there isn't um, if there isn't someone's emotional experiences, then it's not really a memoir. It's just a biography. You know, mm-hmm. we're, we do it with, if, if, um, if That's we're not a really, that is a, that is a really fascinating thing. If it's not, it's a series of events you're saying. Yeah. It's just, it's just a series of events. It's, it's just, it's just a story and, and mm-hmm. it, it, uh, it might as well just be a Wikipedia article. And, uh, you know, and, and the, the, the series of events, you know, it's often very interesting how it unfolded, but yeah, if, um, if we're not, um, if we're not getting your feelings and, um, you know, and, and, and how that informed your choices, um, then, then yeah, it's, it's just, it's just a biography that, that anybody could have written about you. Um, the, um, yeah, I don't know where it's going with that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's a, I think it's a fascinating, I, yeah, I just, I think it's a fascinating concept because there, there is something about sort of like plumbing the depths and there's also something about looking back, right? Cause there's things I know now that I didn't know then. Yeah. Um, so there's also commentary to be made about like, oh, wow. When I look back on that now, I see it in a different context or or I see a bigger picture that, you know, when you're 12, <laughs> you don't see because yeah. you can't you can't possibly. So, um, yeah. So you you know, it's having distance from it is hard because you wish you knew more details sometimes. Um, but I have a pretty good memory and, you know, 
I got to get this done before it fades. <laughs> well, and, well some, sometimes when you when it's just a, a story that you're remembering, it it's it's almost like it happened to somebody else. But when you're remembering the feelings that happened, often it becomes, oh, that's why I'm like this because of the feelings and meaning that this thing had. And and this is and that's actually why I remember this so vividly now now that I'm kind of unpacking all the. Uh, the feelings. That well, and that's like now. the core of of, ther- of therapy. Let, yes. let me just say, like, that's the core of psychotherapy, which is it's not always about what happens; it's about the meaning we attach to what happens. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Right? Yeah. It's the it's the mean it's the stories we tell ourselves about what happened, and um, you know, there's a story in my book about this very explosive, very dramatic event with my dad. And I sort of carried that around for 40, not 40 years, for 15 years. And I never told anyone the story uh, because I felt tremendous shame about it. Um, And when I finally told, uh, I told two people about it and they said, "Okay, like, do you want our like analysis of what we think happened? And I'm like, yeah. And they had a totally different take on it. And my mind, like, basically cracked in half. Like, I was like, wait, what? (laughs) You know, and they just saw it from a totally different perspective. Right. And so they were like, oh, I think this was going on. You probably didn't know that this was going on. Something behind the scenes was happening. And I'm like, what? So it is. um, Yeah, it's just like the the meanings we attach to things and the stories we tell ourselves and and what and what role we played. um, That's why the process itself is just so intense for me. Yeah, for sure. And I think one of the other things that that connects people, like when they when they read something that you've written and and they really are able to sort of identify it is is when we do expose those vulnerabilities, because that's when they can see themselves in your experience, even if they haven't lived your exact experience. It's like, oh, yeah, well, that's what it was like for me here. And it helps people feel like they're not alone in those moments. I mean, that's the goal, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because well, I did, there is a series of things about my life, which are quite unusual. <laughs> They're quite unusual. Um, the circumstances of my life, um, just growing up with a gay dad, you know, is, uh, there's not like a hundred, you know, memoirs about that, especially as a queer person. Yeah. So there are unusual circumstances, but um, I hope that you can see through, like you can see through that, that there are still, you know, hopes and dreams and struggles and, pain and love and loyalty and you know wanting to belong all those things Mm -hmm. so who else's stories have inspired you to be so open with your story Ooh, that's such a good question because the other thing i started doing as soon as i started the patreon was reading like a memoir a week kind of like a crash course Kind of just to um, look at how people, what people told, what they didn't tell, uh, how they structured their books, how they were written, um, like format and framework and point of view. And you know what I mean? Like, I just thought I'm just going to read. I'm just going to keep reading memoirs um, and uh, and 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 let that also sort of inspire me, too. Huh. I mean, I think my earliest inspirations are really these like queer feminist sex writers like Susie Bright, um, Patrick Califia, who 
would write with such specificity about their own sex lives and identities and were shameless. You know, also Amber Hollabaugh comes to mind, Shree Moraga, these folks who had stripped the shame away. And it doesn't mean they weren't experiencing shame, but in writing it, it felt like they had come to a place of shamelessness. Right. And that felt really good. And that gave me permission then to be shameless. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and then there's like some mainstream books, like the book Educated, which has been on the New York Times bestseller list, like forever and ever and ever um, is really fascinating. Um, God, why is it on blanking? Well, there's a book by Christina Crosby, which is called A Body Undone, Living On After Great Pain. That's mm. a fascinating book. Um, Maggie Nelson's book, The Argonauts, which is an entirely experimental form, but is autobiographical and memoir-ish, um, is a really fascinating look at a, a kind of um, a queer life and how she sort of pieced together that story. Alison Bechdel also had a gay dad who was actually closeted. And so her um, book, Fun Home, yeah. which, which got turned into a musical, which is yeah. a musical. Um, it's a, it's actually a, a comic novel or what's what's it called? Graphic, a graphic novel. Graphic novel. Thanks, Tristan. A graphic novel. And it's um, really, really good. I mean, it's it's the most there's just the most similar things to my story. So I definitely like see myself in that book except of course um allison went on to become butch and i went on to become femme but somewhere yeah. in there so I've, I've read that and i love that um so when they when they make a musical about your memoir who's yeah. who's gonna play a young tristan termy yeah it's so funny because i've been so 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 thinking about who's gonna play my parents Right. Because I can tell you for sure, either Jessica Walter or Annette Benning is going to play my mom. Oh, my God. <laughs> do you are you do you conjure now what I'm saying? <laughs> oh, Jessica yeah. Walter is most most known for Arrested Development. Um, uh, even like Christine Baranski could could like kick her kick her shoes in there. Or Annette Benning. I feel like I've met your mom yeah, now, now yeah. that you're that you're, you've conjured all, all these. Yeah. Um, my dad is trickier <laughs> because what I would have said is Kevin Spacey. He looks like my dad and he's quite like caustic and direct. But now that all that stuff has come out about him being sexual Eesh. misconduct, sexual possibly violence, uh, all that shit, that's just creepy now, right? It's just creepy. So I don't know who would play my dad. Who would play a young me? Gosh, that's, um, that, is fascinating you know i'm obsessed with the show on hulu right now called the great which is a fictionalized story of catherine the great and l fanning is playing catherine and she is really fucking funny and very strong-willed and smart and uh she might be able to like pull that off i think later nice. in life tina fey could play me also <laughs> but as a kid i hadn't thought of like what child actor could um does like could play me i don't know that's a great question i'm gonna have to think of that for like when the book comes out right i'm gonna have to think about the whole cast <laughs> and have that like on, answered like on on right on the front of my brain so when lynn manuel calls you're like okay yeah, when lynn these manuel are the people calls, i need i will take that call 
Um, <laughs> we went to the same college and he is, I believe, you know, a genius, a, a fucking genius. And uh, when he calls, I will, I will take that call. <laughs> so why don't you tell our listeners where they can find you and all of your great stuff? Yes. So if you want to support my Patreon, I'm still posting chapters exclusively. No one has read this book except people on my Patreon and my agent. So that's pretty intense. And that's just patreon.com slash Tristan Terramino. I am on social media across all platforms at Tristan Terramino, and I do my own social media. Um, I have two websites which are so outdated, it's it's sort of embarrassing to tell you. One of them is my name, TristanTaramino.com, really needs to be updated. But there you can find like professional stuff. And then my podcast is called Sex Out Loud. It is available every every Monday, a new episode goes up across all platforms. So Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. And uh, to find out more about the podcast, you can go to sexoutloudradio.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Uh, so great having you and uh, and talking a little bit about your story and, and your upcoming memoir. This was so fun. No one's asked me this many questions about it. And it's <laughs> like what I'm deep into right now. So <laughs> I'm really into it. Like, you know, you could have asked me about anal sex, too. That's fine. But <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> but like you didn't. And I just feel really happy to talk about it. <laughs> well, the, the the next episode we do will, will be about anal sex with Tristan Turner. <laughs> okay. 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 I'll come back. I'll come back. That's cool. Yes. Super. Yay. We did it. We did it. Thank you for joining us. Kat's novel, Waking Up Polyamorous, is available on paperback and ebook. Get it today from your favorite online book retailer. My sexy memoir, Yelling and Pasties The Wet Coast Confessions of an Anxious Slut, is available on audiobook, ebook, and paperback. 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 <laughs> Go to Amazon.com or visit OnTheWetCoast.com for links to other marketplaces. Be like other awesome listeners by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platforms. Just a few sentences make a huge difference in our visibility. You can help us have more adventures to tell you about by contributing to our Patreon, patreon.com slash on the wet coast. Huge thanks to our Patreon supporters who help make the show possible. Follow us on Twitter at wetcoastcat, at seriousflick, at on the wet coast. Email comments or questions to contact at onthewetcoast.com and go to onthewetcoast.com for cat's blog, toy reviews, and more. <laughs> Why did I even say that? That's such a dad joke. Oh my god, that was so funny. It's your uh, it's your masculine energy. That oh my god, I, that literally just happened today, you guys. There's a great Canadian word that you you folks don't use called a keener, um, and it's just someone who's like ridiculously eager um, <laughs> and like super enthusiastic and and wants to you know like. Some people have sort of said like a brown noser, but it's not a suck up. It's just someone. It's just like the person who sits at the front of the class and is like, right, right. I want to learn more. It's not, but it's, I'm a, I would say that I'm a keener, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> is it a noun or is it an adjective? It it's is a noun. It's a noun. Yeah. Like, yeah. To, oh, I love to be, it. To be keen is right. Right. To be eager. But it's yeah. A keener. It, I don't know why it's only a Canadian word, but it is. Yeah. Apparently no. Just, yeah. Because it doesn't have a direct translation. You're right.
but it's someone who's like super eager, but we don't have a noun for that in America. Yeah. Not really. It's a missing word. Canada has a lot of great words for, for things that, like a toque. A toque is a thing you can't. Yes, a toque. That, yeah, <laughs> a toque. I know what a toque is only because I know Canadian people. 